0: Welcome to the Minor Consult, where I speak to the leaders shaping our world in diverse ways. Today, I'm joined by Roberta Katz, an anthropologist whose book, Gen Z Explained, The Art of Living in a Digital Age, helps reveal the values, viewpoints, and vision of those born between the mid-1990s and 2010. Roberta's research is both revelatory and illuminating, and comes as our first generation of digital natives begin entering the workforce. I'm excited to discuss her research and its impact on how we lead and inspire. Roberta, welcome. It's great to see you.
1: Thank you, Lloyd, very much.
0: So Roberta, you earned both a PhD in anthropology and a JD. You've spent part of your career as general counsel for what's now at and Wireless, and then later at Netscape. And as well, you've done a number of things here at Stanford related to strategy and the overall trajectory of the University, working closely with John Hennessy and other leaders uh, to shape the future of this great University. So as a trained anthropologist and lawyer, I'm curious about, you you know, your career path, your life path. You've had impact in so many different fields, and of course, I know that there's more to come. Uh, But maybe you can tell us about your journey uh, to get us started.
1: Sure, it's a it's a twisted kind of. I talk about it a little bit as my checkered past. Um, I it actually started at Stanford. I came to Stanford as uh, my parents had not gone to college. I was a first generation uh, student and came with a expectation that I would major in math. Um, and the Stanford opened my eyes to so much. And one of the things I was able to do at Stanford was be part of what they call Stanford in Italy. They took a group of us to Italy, and that was such a remarkable experience that when I came back to campus after being in Italy for nine months, I immediately changed my major from math to anthropology. I thought there's a big world out there and I want to learn more about it. And I had no career aspirations, but I had a wonderful, advisor uh, an anthropologist who when i was graduating said what are you doing next and i said well i'm getting married this was back in the 60s and as a woman did not have career expectations and he said no you really should go to graduate school and i am very much indebted to this person who sent me on my on my course um, I had, I really enjoyed uh, graduate school and I did field work in Mexico and I uh, my I developed an expertise, I guess you could say, in social change. I'm, it's fascinating to me. And But as I was um, interviewing for teaching positions, I was going around the country being interviewed and I, I came back from one of those trips and said to my husband, I'm not sure this is actually what I want to do. Uh, it felt a little confining and to my husband's dismay, <laughs> he had come with me uh, for a year of fieldwork. Um, I, I then uh, went to the bookstore and found this book called um, uh, What Color is Your Parachute? And it was a vanity press book, but it has since gotten a lot of uh, popularity at helping people find their career path. I worked through all the exercises and it said, you really ought to think about business and law. So that the little math part of me was showing up again. and I um, And so I went to law school, I came out, I thought I was giving up the anthropology totally. I became a, a lawyer in a firm and realized as I was getting my sea legs as a lawyer, that in fact, I was a better lawyer by virtue of being an anthropologist. And you might say, well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, anthropologists learn about people and they learn about people in contexts and lawyers, if they're doing their job right, in my estimation, have to be dealing with people either in conflict where they need to resolve that conflict or people who are trying to put something together, but coming from different places, like in a business deal. And I found that what I had learned in anthropology helped me help my clients when they were dealing with people from different contexts or who saw things differently. So the other other thing that then helped me a lot was my expertise in social change because um, as as I went along as a firm lawyer, one of my clients um, invited me to become general counsel of his company. And that was the company that was the predecessor to AT&T Wireless, and that was all about cellular, which at the time was a relatively new technology, but I, my, my expectations about social change helped me. And then that job led me to become general counsel at Netscape, and there in particular, my knowledge about social change gave me confidence because there wasn't, I'm the general counsel, I'm supposed to be interpreting law. There wasn't a lot of law at the time about What we were doing with the internet. So I, and then uh, after more twists and turns in this little path, I, um, John Hennessy, the then president of Stanford, called me and said he wanted his legacy to be putting different faculty from different disciplines together to work on the big problems of our age. And that, of course, spoke to my heart because I I had felt my own career had been advantaged by, by having two disciplinary backgrounds. And he said, I need someone to help me make it happen. And that's how I ended up at Stanford. Long story.
0: Well, it's a fascinating story. Maybe before we move to the book, tell us about Netscape because, um, you know, Netscape got it all started. I mean, there were others, but uh, <laughs> yeah. did you have the sense that? that the world was about to change because of what you and others were doing. I mean, um, and and maybe you could spend a few minutes just describing the history. Some of our listeners may not be aware of the history of the internet and browsers and the pivotal role that Netscape played um, in, in something that we completely take for granted today and that we interface with every day, uh, multiple times a day. So, I'm just curious, you and your colleagues um, at the very early stages of the company, this company was growing very rapidly, did you have the sense of where this was going to go? And you as an anthropologist, did you see the way this was going to radically impact the lives of, of a vast majority of people on the planet?
1: Yes. Oh, that's such a wonderful question, and I, uh, I could talk for an hour just about that you know, I I came to Netscape because the man who had been my boss at the, the uh, cellular company came down to this tiny little software company and called me and said, would you come down? I was living in Seattle. This new company was in Palo Alto or Silicon Valley. And he said, would you come down and be the general counsel? I said, absolutely not. I don't need to move. And he said, well, okay, just come down and help me get the get hire the general counsel, help me get the legal department set up. So I came down and the first thing that, um, that I did was meet with the, the head of technology and also with Mark Andreessen who is given credit for being one of or the leader of a team that invented basically the browser that became so, that we kind of are so familiar with today. And as I was talking with them, I had never heard of the internet, but as they talked about what this company was about, all my little bells and whistles and antennas went up because of what I had learned about the power of networks in dealing with cellular. And I suddenly understood this was likely to be huge. So again, I called my husband and said, I know I said I wasn't going to do this, but I have to do this. And yes, we, we, it, it all happened so fast.
0: So you uh, <clears throat> took Netscape forward, uh took it public, and um, then came to Stanford, worked on a number of different strategic initiatives at Stanford. And as you were describing before, um, helped to knit together the amazing pieces of this great university and maybe could could you expand a bit more on that and some of the projects uh, that were most exciting for you? And then uh, that could lead us into this transition to the work that you and um, two colleagues who were then at Stanford, as well as a colleague from England, uh, came together uh, to do the work that led to the book. But but maybe you could describe that the context here at Stanford and then the discussions with your colleagues that led to the research and then to the book.
1: Sure. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle the first one about the job at Netscape. I mean, at Stanford. Sorry, the um, what was challenging at the beginning was that people in different disciplines had very different value systems, even different languages. They could be using the same word but it would have different connotations in the different disciplines and my going back to what i had learned as an anthropologist about building bridges cross-cultural kind of uh, communication turned out to be very important faculty and this was in the uh this was around 2004 when we started this and i give john hennessy so much credit for having the vision he really wanted his legacy to be the development of these cross-cultural research projects because he understood that contemporary problems require multidisciplinary approaches and But but bringing people together so that they could figure out how to work together was the challenge. And so my job was really to just to kind of midwife that process. So we did it for an institute relating to the Internet. We did it for an institute relating to um, called BioX, the X being various kinds of technologies, including medical technologies. Um, We did it for one relating to energy. We did it for one relating to the arts. We did it for a, a, a whole variety of subject matters that were very important as we came into the 21st century, where we needed people with different expertises to learn how to talk to each other, and more importantly, respect each other. So that was it was actually a labor of love for me. I thought I would do it for a couple of years when I first accepted the the assignment and I ended up doing it for over for almost 15 years. So it was um, it was it was it was very joyful for me. I loved working with the faculty um, because they are smart and they are curious and they once they realized the value of working together, my job was done. Everybody could take it from there. Now, the Gen Z project came out of um, came out of a dinner conversation. I um, I was having dinner with three colleagues, and uh, one was a sociologist, one was a, um, a historian, and one was a linguist. All women. We were having dinner, and we started comparing notes on the fact that the young students that we were seeing coming into Stanford were the same age as prior generations of incoming students, but had very different behaviors. And we each had anecdotes. The one I told that I was kind of shocking to me, I had an advisee, because I, I advised some of these young people for many years. And one of these young women, um, who had been pursuing a lot of courses in the humanities, came time to choose a major and she chose computer science. And I was shocked, I said, why? She said, really, because in computer science I get to work with friends, I don't have to work alone. That was her single reason. And I thought, that's a really interesting reason to be choosing a major. Anyway, we all had these kinds of anecdotes and over dinner, we we were somewhat critical But along the way, um, one of us said, this is worth looking into. We really should look into this. And then we started generating ideas of how we might do it. And we took the four of us took this kind of nascent idea to a friend who was running one of the centers at Stanford, the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. And we said, does this have legs? And she said, not only does it have legs, but I'm gonna go get you a research grant. And two weeks later, there we were with this research grant. Um, do you want me to talk a little bit about the, how the four of us proceeded?
0: Please, please do.
1: Okay. So we decided it would be revealing to bring our different expertises together to see what we would find. So as the anthropologist, I took the lead on overseeing, um, we interviewed 120 young people between the ages of 18 and 25. And uh, we, older people, did not do the interviewing. We had their age peers do the interviewing. This became necessary when I, as I gathered a group of uh, research assistants, young research assistants who were going to help on the project. And they were helping me think through the questions that we would be asking of the students we were interviewing and And when we were talking about what would be the icebreaker, they said, oh, we're going to do the starter pack. That'll be a great icebreaker. And I looked at them and I said, what is that? And they went on to explain that the starter pack was an Internet meme that you would do if you were sending. If you wanted to send a friend something that says, I really see you. I see who you are. You would go to the Internet and you would find little pictures of things that represented that friend to you. So if someone liked spaghetti, you would find a picture of spaghetti. If someone had a dog that was a poodle, you would put that picture in and you would create a little internet thing and you would send it to your friend and it said, I know you. So they said for when we do the the icebreaker, let's ask these kids if they were making a starter pack for themselves, what would they put in it? It was brilliant. It was that experience that when they when these young people said, you know what, Roberta, let us do the interviews. We'll, we'll um, record them, and then you can read them. And it was very wise. So we learned a lot. We interviewed students at Stanford, students at a community college uh, near in Silicon Valley, and students at Lancaster University in the northern part of England. It was a cross section, even though they were all in higher ed. They, it was a great cross section of of ethnicity, race, economic background, and so on but it was only 120 people. So we got from those interviews, we learned a lot. We were, sh- we were surprised by how much similarity there was in many of the answers to the questions. From that, we built a survey that was administered by a very reputable survey company called YouGov. They, they, um, and we used what we had learned in the interviews to create questions for the survey. We surveyed a thousand people in that age group, in the uh, UK and a thousand people in the US. Same, more or less, the same questions with some language changes for the different places. That gave us a lot of data. It was random sample, very diverse. Many of the uh, people who answered were not college educated, and so we had because we were worried that people would say, "Well, everybody you talked to was from a college." So we we said, "No, nope, we're going to get people who are not college educated as well." And then, and then at the same time, we built this what's called a linguistic corpus. We there is in in um, the algorithms now allow linguists to what they call scrape websites for word use, language use, and analyze it and compare it. So our linguist was able to build a seventy million word corpus that came from websites that we knew were uh, frequented by people in this age group, primarily. And she then was able to, to look at word usage and compare it to a similar but bigger corpus of what they call standard language usage of all age groups. And certain, certain patterns come out, different words, different, different associations of words, so we had we had the interviews we had the surveys we had the linguistic corpus and then our fourth person was a historian who as we were putting all the data together from these three other areas of study was able to give us some context a historical context and put it in a framework that's again a long answer <laughs> that's
0: that that's fascinating perhaps you could mention uh, and you cover this and by the way for for Viewers and listeners, this is the book, and I highly recommend it. Um, but you 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 provide a glossary in in the book and a description of many of these phrases that, as you as you describe, came out from overlaying um, you know uh, dictionaries or lexicons from, um, from standard usage, and then uh, one from uh, the, the the generation that you're studying. Uh, can you describe some of the unique features of uh, the linguistics, the the words that are being used by uh, Gen Zers?
1: Yeah, um, as you'll see in this glossary, the number of words that relate to gender was shocking. The number of words that relate to sexual orientation, I mean, we just had no idea. So everything is very nuanced. One thing that uh, we can talk about a little bit is that as we all know from being on the internet and on social media there are now groups and communities for any interest. So as a as a, a, a as humanity we've gotten very practiced at slicing and dicing so many things. Nowadays if you're interested in cooking you can find a website not just about cooking but about a particular type of cooking in a particular area from a particular orientation to that food. Well, the same thing is happening. These young people who grew up with this practiced uh, uh, behavior online are doing that with language as well. So they are able to slice and dice into so many different behavioral boxes that it's stunning. In in terms of particular words that are interesting to me, this is just one example. The word fam that they use does not mean your family as we older people think of it. It means your closest friends. They are your fam. I'll just give that as one example.
0: That's great. I'm curious because we, we talked earlier in your work at Netscape and the, the foundations of the browser uh, coming from the work that you and other colleagues did and uh, and moving forward and the many things that, that Netscape seeded. Now, looking back on those experiences and you, what you were doing at the time, because this, the characteristic of, distinguishing characteristic of Gen Z, one of the foremost distinguishing characteristics is the fact that this generation, Gen Z, has grown up entirely with the internet. Um, did you foresee that uh, as Netscape was moving forward? And as you relate what you were thinking at the time and, and the many opportunities that you and, and others involved with Netscape and, and the foundations of the internet were seeing, did you envision things developing as they have? And maybe more specifically, now, from what you know about Gen Z, can you project forward a decade, 15, 20 years from now um, as to what the sequel to Gen Z will say about uh, generations that that, that follow uh, in the future?
1: Yeah. This is a really interesting question, Lloyd. Um, we did not foresee the 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 all these ramifications that we are living through right now as a as a executive at Netscape and frankly as one of the um older people in the in the executive uh, or in the at in the workforce of Netscape um I was asked to speak a lot to older audiences I mean older than 20. Um, and I remember saying at the time that this was a social revolution that was engendered by a technological revolution that was unfolding relatively easily. And I would say to people what we learned in the history books about the Industrial Revolution was that you know, this, the introduction of industrial technology caused so much commotion. You know, we would read about people moving to the cities and, and how they were struggling in the cities and how hard it was. And i would likely said, see, we're doing this and it's not nearly as, as uh, uh, disruptive. Well, guess what? <laughs> I, I was just way too early. And what I have seen now is um, and the Gen Z project really helped me understand better is that we we are in the midst of a birthing of what is yet to come. What we have seen now is a lot of institutions that are fraying or are broken across the board, whether it's politics, education, religion, family. We, be, be, we are living through a period of so rapid change and so profound change that our heads are spinning, and and so we are we are probably on the not even on the downside of this transition that society is is kind of fumbling its way toward, and I see Gen Z at the forefront. They they have grown up. I I emphasize three things about this new revolution. What the Internet has brought us is scope of it's an abundance of information. We live in the information age. Scope of that, scale of that and speed of that is unprecedented in human experience. There have been other times when humans have had to adapt to a lot of change but this much change where potentially seven billion people in the world are connected in one network potentially where everyone potentially has aspect uh, has access with a megaphone to speak where we can all put stuff into this network and pull stuff out of this network that is unprecedented And these young people didn't know any other way of living. They grew up in their very formative years, immersed in this massive experiment of information. And so they, they have learned some methods of adaptation. Some are good, some are bad during a period of time that their parents couldn't lead them, couldn't guide them because the parents, not only were facing all of this, but trying to make a living, you know, make sure that their families were cared for, and and didn't have that, and trying to understand our sense of time, of space, all those things have been changed by access to this massive network. And interestingly enough, before we started this study, we got the idea for the study, and we thought, well, we better get a focus group of young people to to talk to us, uh, to see if they'll talk about behaviors and values. And so we gathered uh, 10 or 12 students and we asked them about their lives and they, to our, um, we were happy to see that they were willing to talk about themselves. Well, then we said, will you talk about your values, the values of your generation? Because we thought that might be a little touchy. On the contrary, they leaned in and one kid raised his hand right away and he said, oh, well, let me tell you what our t- my top value is, it's flexibility. And we were like, what do you mean flexibility? I've never thought of that as a, the kind of big value. He said, look, I have lived my whole life with constant change. I expect to live the rest of my life with constant change. I'm going to have many jobs. I constantly have to adapt to new technology. So it's a different... We're, we're in the midst of something very profound, and it is very unsettling. More so for those of us who are older, because we don't have, we, we, we came with different understandings of how the world works. So I'm fascinated by their understanding, because it's, as I said, at the forefront.
0: Roberta, that was really helpful to, to get your perspectives on sort of how the, the thoughts, the values of of Gen Zers have been shaped. I was wondering if you could project forward when Gen Zers are mm-hmm. in their late 40s, 50s, 60s, How how will the world be reshaped because of them? And maybe in your crystal ball, what will those following them be confronting?
1: Well... There are some big issues that we can't ignore here. Climate change is, is already having a huge impact. Um, we don't know. I'm, I'm working right now with the center at Stanford that is dealing with artificial intelligence. Lloyd, a lot of what you're working on in the medical field with not just artificial intelligence, but bioengineering, um, you know, the, the, the genome and so on, It is very hard for all of us, or any of us, other than maybe science fiction writers, to fully understand where this is taking us. And um, what we noticed when we interviewed these young people is that they're conflicted. We call it a paradox. They really want to have stable jobs. They really want to have families. They're very uncertain as to how that is going to take place in a future that is still so unknown. So they are, you know, I've called them pioneers. I've called them explorers. They are in a new land. Um, And just as people who explored new lands in the past had to kind of make it up as they went, I see it that way. And one of the reasons we wrote the book is so that older people older generations of people could have more um, appreciation for the task that these young people are facing and try to come to them with, not with a know-it-all attitude, not with an attitude of do it like we did it, because that's not gonna work. But, but with a, with a, the knowledge, we, we have been guided by some very important values and we can help them Instill those values in what they cre- create. So it's not a it's not a um, concrete answer to the question, but it's how I see it.
0: You're you're an optimist by nature. I've uh, yeah. we've had the privilege of knowing each other before uh, before the book, before today, and the book is very optimistic about the future. It's it's informative, but it, it, it casts an optimistic vision about the future. What what makes you optimistic about the impact uh you talked a little bit about it, but maybe go into a little bit more detail about what makes you optimistic about the impact that Gen Zers are going to have as they move beyond their formative years and um, and as they begin to um, have children and uh and and increasingly shape the world
1: yeah great question uh there are several features of these young people that i uh that make me optimistic one is they are they have not lost their humanity and you know it's easy to say these kids have been online they're always online da da da, da. when in our in our interviews we included a question that was um what's your favorite form of communicating with others and we thought some people would say email some people would say the phone some people would say Uh, texting to a one and this shocked us. They said, oh, face to face, in person, face to face. And when they were asked why, they said, oh, you just get a better sense. Some people said, oh, because I can really tell someone's listening to me. (laughs) They're really in the dialogue. But and in other in other areas, they're they're actually quite social, even when they're got their heads on and they're on their computers. They're together and they want to be together. They congregate together. They create cozy little places in the library to be together. Um, And they have worked together. They, they, it's going back to that anecdote about that student. They like working collaboratively. And if you think about it, they're used to collaborative projects. Wikipedia is collaborative. Google docs, collaborative, they, they almost. They, they are very effective collaborating, and they're not necessarily looking for a, a sort of hierarchical leadership structure to say, okay, this is what you do. They're self-starters because they've always been able to go to the internet to get information. Um, they, they are, um, they're actually much more, um, they're much less naive than a lot of us older people are about fake news about sort of sorting the wheat from the chaff in terms of what's on the Internet, because and and one of the values they have is they call it authenticity. But really what they mean is, can I trust you? Will you do what sure. you say? Yeah. Um, they So they um, and and, you know, the OK Boomer thing, the OK Boomer, where they kind of uh, uh, an older person says, "Well, you really ought to do it this way," and they kind of roll their eyes. And instead of arguing, they go, "Okay, okay, boomer." They are—they um, have a sort of almost world weary wisdom about them that says, "We've got a lot on our shoulders." You older generations didn't, either, didn't care about it, or didn't, um, or, or didn't know to do anything about it we need to do something about it. They also have a much, um, because of their own experiences, both in um, growing up in a more diverse society, it, it, and I'm speaking mostly about the US and Britain, because that's, that's where we studied, um, but because they had exposure on the internet to such diversity, that's that's a, a large part of the reason why they are about, they, they are so adamant about, um, about, diversity equity inclusion racial justice all of that and and appreciation of diverse identity they they know they're one of 7 billion in a way that those of us who were older didn't grow up really understanding one it wasn't 7 billion people in the world when we were growing up but but we we didn't we didn't have exposure to that much so put all that together they are willing to roll up their sleeves and work hard. And they know they've got the task to recreate institutions that work in a digital information age.
0: Roberta, thank you so much. There are two questions that I like to ask all of our guests. And um, the first of those is, is for when you're looking at the most important qualities of a leader today, what qualities would you identify, uh, particularly for the nonprofit sector, uh, the sector that, that in the recent decade you've worked the most closely with?
1: I, I would actually, I don't distinguish between the for-profit and nonprofit. Okay. I, and, and partly because I think we are in this, we are in the midst of this period of change. And so I, w- I, I, I urge leaders to think about um to have an openness to to change and with that openness to to be able to have a vision that is that is in the context of the mission whatever the mission of the organization is to think about it in the context of this of this changing world and to be open to suggestions to ideas, but to also be have clarity about where this leader wants the organization to go. I think we are all living with so much tumult that we need clarity, but not dictatorial clarity. Clarity that is, um, that is compassionate, that is empathetic, that includes within it an element of curiosity and and respect i really think we need to be modeling respect for difference respect for um for potential so i and i think that's true it's whatever wonderful. the organization is from for a nonprofit maybe it's easier to think about the mission rather than the bottom line but in every case we are leading people it, we can't we like, can't forget well that nothing yeah. gets done. Nothing gets done without the people that are there to do it.
0: Absolutely, that that's so well stated and so insightful. And then finally, what gives you hope for the future?
1: Um, well, I expect humanity to survive, and so i i am I am applauding these attributes of Gen Z that I think will give them the the um, the wherewithal to collegially, hopefully, uh, work together. I hope that you know the one of the one of the things those of us who are older learned during COVID is what it means to live with this sort of seamless integration of of online lives and offline lives, or what they call in real life lives, IRL lives, um, and if we have. You know, before Gen Z has been very good at that seamless integration. Now those of us who are older are much better at it. And so I think that may open some opportunities for more cross-generational dialogue. I am, again, that was why we wrote the book. And so I, I expect humanity to survive and thrive.
0: That's wonderful. Well, Roberta, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Gen Z Explained author Roberta Katz. Please send your questions by email to The Minor Consult at TheMinorConsult.com and check out our website, TheMinorConsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind.